Welcome to this remastered version of a 2015 series called Judge Awarung Radio. This series was made possible by a community grant from the Mount Alexander Shire Council. Created for Main FM to be aired as short 5-10 to 10 minute segments to highlight and celebrate local Indigenous culture past and present. The series was shortlisted for the 2016 Reconciliation Victoria Heart Awards. For ease of listening, we've edited them together into 30 to 40 minute episodes and have linked episodes by theme rather than representing the order that they were originally broadcast in. So every time you hear the didgeridoo, you'll know it's the beginning or the end of an episode. We hope you enjoy it. Listening to a glimpse into the history and culture of the Jajawarung people. Presented by Uncle Rick Nelson and Ali Hanley. And I have with me today Vic Say, a long time um, family friend of ours. Vic, your family's had various um, interactions with the Aboriginal local tribes around here. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly, Rick. The, the family that I come from on my mother's side, who were the Outram family in Maryborough, but also married into the Locke family and the Meredith family. Seven generations of, of my family have, have lived and died on your country, Jajarong country, since the 1850s when they arrived in Maryborough for gold. Uh, in um, 1854, it's uh, recorded in the family diaries that um, the Locke family were in that part of the world around Carisbrook, and uh, the local Aboriginal folk, who numbered about 20 apparently, of all ages, uh, would move across their property, apparently travelling from Deep Creek uh, wandering through the Meredith property for a few days, fishing, camping, looking after their children, doing the sort of things that people do when they're hunter-gatherers and they're collecting enough food for the, for the whole group from the countryside. So they would go through the Meredith property and then they'd continue across uh, the property of another member of the Locke family and on to the Loddon. And during those times, uh, one of the family, uh, a young guy called Samuel, who was about three or four years of age, and uh, he would join the Aboriginal folk when they were on their property and spend whole days with them, playing, no doubt fishing, hunting, doing the things that children do at that age. And one day, apparently, when the Aboriginal folk moved on from the lot property, young Samuel didn't come home for dinner. Now, one could imagine that there'd be family concern and family panic. But not only was there no family panic, there seems that there was no family concern. And not only that, the child didn't come home the next day or the next, apparently the days ran into weeks, according to family diaries. And after some few weeks, the Aboriginal people, as they did, returned on their cycle of hunting and gathering and moving across their country and back 
to well-known resources. The regular haunts. Yes, and as they came back, lo and behold, young Samuel came with them, uh-huh. well looked after, healthy, happy, happy to see his family again. The only difference was that he was now talking Judge Jaurong. Wow. And the family, I think this is one of the reasons it got into the family diaries, that, mm. <laughs> that he came home wanting to talk Judge Jaurong to the kid, to the family. And, um, and so I guess that sort of story is, is, it tells us two things. It tells us that in 1854, there was enough goodwill between the Aboriginal folk and across a number of, of, of colonial white property owners for there to be completely comfortable coexistence. It tells us an enormous amount about the trust between this particular family. To, to, I mean, I, I find it difficult to conceive of a child not coming home even if it was grandmas or grandpas, but of course they didn't live in the age of mobile phones where we all have to know everything instantly. The other thing it tells us is that the Aboriginal people were able to subsist off the country. They may have been getting food. They may have been calling at known places and getting some some European-style food, but equally it suggests that they were more or less subsisting as they had traditionally on the country in that area. So it tells us two interesting things, because this is after the closure of Franklin Ford. I was going to say that the protector had been around for a number of years then. Yeah. Uh, so after the closure of Franklin Ford um, and before the Aboriginal people locally were cleared off this country in 1864, uh, they were living in a way that was comfortable for them and in a cooperative relationship with with the, 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 the settlers or the colonial settlers in that part of the world. Yeah, right, so that's really interesting. Well, yeah, it's uh, Rick Nelson here, and I have with me today Vic Say, a long-time um, family friend of ours and local Indigenous uh, go-to person. We have a we have a long uh, a fairly long um, friendship and family connections, don't we, Vic? Can you tell us when you sort of first met our family, the Nelson family? Well, I can, Rick. Uh, certainly, uh, I was a principal out at Tuton Primary School in the eighties, and uh, I taught your younger brother and your younger sister. They were in the same class classes as as my own. Uh, older son and my daughter and uh, in fact we we uh, had a school excursion down to Lake Conda where your father Uncle Brian uh, a very significant Jajarung elder who's in failing health now but at that time was the ranger down at Lake Conda and we took the whole of the senior school and a group of parents down to Lake Conda so we could sit at the feet of of an authority on his own uh, culture and on his side of the um, of the colonial story and how Lake Conda people had been treated and how they survived so uh, that was the beginning of my relationship with with your family Rick and then of course we met you because uh, 
we were doing a display at the town hall in the town hall foyer and we had some Nelson family and Jajarong family material there but we I'm not indigenous and and uh, I'm certainly uh, a learner and an explorer not an authority and you wonderfully came in and brought more of your family history into the display and there were photographs of you and me uh, amending the display and putting up photos of, of your ancestors and making notes about how uh, your family uh, related through the generations to this country and to your current family here now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and of course, I've got the Lake Condor stuff where my father worked, has got the um, famous fish traps down there, and the stone fish traps. Yeah, my father run the Lake Condor mission. So over the next um, period of weeks, um, we'll be touching on various articles from the Black Threads Amongst the Gold series. So how did that start off, Vic? Well, uh, the early, um, late, late 90s, early 2000s, when the Friends of the Diggings people locally were taking people on uh, tours of the local diggings, uh, and, and looking for the heritage, the diggings heritage in the local gold fields, there was still some suggestion by some of the people in the in the in the in the diggings world that that the Aboriginal people were never here, that there was no Aboriginal heritage on the in the landscape, and that um, people approached me to say that they were concerned that there needed to be a balance between uh, what was seen in the landscape and what was pointed out to people, that the Aboriginal heritage here, scar trees, uh, rock uh, rock scarrings and rock mouldings by uh, rubbing and so on, chippings, uh, should be equally valued and understood and the thought that uh, this could be ignored was of concern. I had worked with historians over some time on the Indigenous story locally and so uh, with the agreement of the diggings, Friends of the Diggings people, for 18 months each month I looked up primary source material, found records of uh, white, uh, not always British, Polish uh, and other people, uh, Italian, uh, commenting on the Aboriginal presence in the gold fields and the interaction between uh, the Aboriginal people and the diggers, the participation of Aboriginal people in the diggings and uh, for a month, for each, each month, for 18 months, the Friends of the Diggings uh, people in their diggings news uh, put an item called Black Threads Amongst the Gold uh, because what I was looking for were to try and dig out those threads of story uh, from the black side of, of our history uh, which in a sense can be drowned out by what I call the din of the diggings. My name's Ali and in today's episode 
Rick is going to have a chat with Vic Say about white people discovering gold in Victoria, which of course led to the gold rush and the important role that Aboriginal people played in that discovery. Over at Clunes, uh, one of the shepherds, uh, uh, Tom, Tommy Chapman, seen a young boy, a young Aboriginal boy, throw a rock at, at a flock of geese or ducks or something and, and the shepherd went over and to investigate and actually found out that it was a, a lump of gold. Um, can you tell us a couple of stories, Vic, of um, like the, the native police of that or Aboriginals finding some gold locally around? Yes, yeah, certainly. The, uh, the Aboriginal culture isn't known to have valued gold uh, in, a traditional, in their traditional world, but they were very, very informed about... Uh, geology generally they knew what stone chipped for uh, flint type uh, purposes they understood what stones ground best for axes and uh, things like that they knew where ochres were they were very informed geologically so when of course they found that the colonial world valued gold uh, they were not strangers to looking at the country and seeing the minerals that they were looking for. Uh, it's, it's recorded that in um, early in uh, 51, uh, there was um, gold found uh, around Buninyong in, uh, in Ballarat. And uh, it's, it's said that uh, when Dana took his troops, his, his native troops up to uh, the Buninyong area, and spent about three weeks there in July. Uh, he quotes his he's quoted as saying that his troopers picked up gold from the ground everywhere they looked. Uh, by the time uh, McClellan uh, brought troopers uh, over this way to the Bendigo Mount Alexander gold fields, uh, there were people prospecting. Uh, somewhere around what they then called ben Golden Gully and Bendigo Creek around the junction there. And uh, Sergeant um, McClellan had a, a group of uh, native police with him and they were having a little bit of success, the, the, the colonial guys. Uh, the native troopers, on the other hand, went off up the gully and they immediately began picking up gold on the surface in considerable quantities. And by night, with the assistance of the dish and the shovel, which the colonial guys down the gully lent them, they had found two pounds weight in gold by the evening that day. And that, in fact, established the rush to the point where the gold was enormously rich that was a very rich find as opposed to the uh, the less the less productive pickings which had been uh, had been dug over and, and searched amongst by the the white colonial so the black troopers were certainly um, involved and as the native troops disbanded over uh, a period of time as some of their uh, sergeants and other people left to go to the gold fields because you can imagine that that uh, McClellan 
thinking, well, two pounds of gold in an afternoon, why am I being paid to be (laughs) in charge of these native police? So some of these people in due course left the, uh, the, the police force. They actually often took or went with their native police back into the gold fields and worked as teams. Uh, again, the din of the colonial digging stories tends to drown out the, 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 the stories of the black people involved in finding gold, in working gold fields. And in fact, there's, there's record a record of um, one of the significant Victorian families from Tasmania coming over, paying their way to come to Victoria and becoming major prospectors on the gold fields. And in fact, they're still a significant Victorian Aboriginal family. But they paid their way, came here. They were, they were gold prospectors along with the rest of the uh, colonial crowd. Uh, so like you say, um, Aboriginal people didn't particularly um, have a use for gold, it being too soft for, for tools and stuff. Um, and there was only the odd report of the shaman men or the, or the medicine men having a, a, a nugget here and there in their dilly bags or the odd little nugget found in some of the humpies. So yeah, Aboriginal people didn't really um, find the gold. It might, might have been a nice shiny yellow piece of stone or, or might have had some spiritual um, qualities about it, but, but that's about all. So that was Vic Say talking with Rick Nelson about the discovery of gold by white people in Victoria as aided by the local Aboriginal population. This morning we're talking to Vic Say. We've had him on the program before and he is a wonderful advocate and ally for the local Indigenous community and has spent many years involving himself in researching the history of especially the early gold rush times and how the Aboriginal people interacted with the colonising forces. One way that that happened is through the Indigenous people becoming troopers for the white government. Well... In the gold rush, of course, there was a dearth of, of uh, white colonials who wanted to be employed by the government compared to trying to make their fortunes on the gold fields. Uh, that was one aspect of it. The other aspect was that Aboriginal people of enormous dignity and independence and status within their own world wondered how on earth you could have equal status in the new colonial world. And one of the things that they found that gave them that status was joining the Native Police Corps, where they dressed in wonderfully colourful and dignified uh, colonial uniforms, where they carried uh, a sword, where they were armed with a musket, they rode in magnificent horses, and... uh, And here they were in the colonial world with the sort of dignity and authority that they were used to having in their traditional Aboriginal world. And so it it made sense to them in in a way. And if you had a leader such as, for instance, the colonial uh, Captain Dana, who was part of the the colonial police uh, hierarchy, who had very good relationships with Aboriginal folk and, and gathered around him... Uh, a core of Aboriginal 
uh, or native troop, uh, native uh, police, uh, who had enormous loyalty to him and he to them and good relationships. And for instance, um, when the rush uh, to Castlemaine, Mount Alexander, uh, happened in, in the September of 1851, the first show of colonial um, authority in Mount Alexander was Dana with the native police who arrived in the third week of October. So within about a month of the rush to the Alexander Goldfields happening, uh, here were uh, police uh, armed, mounted, dignified, with vast authority over the white diggers. Um, And, for instance, uh, in the very first departure of the gold from Mount Alexander uh, to Melbourne. It's a chased cart, a horse-drawn vehicle full of gold driven by an officer with an armed guard. Now, the armed guard consisted of six native police and a couple of, of, uh, colonial, office, of, of colonial police, but, and, and there are also pictures of native police on horses, armed, accompanying convicted or arrested white prisoners to Melbourne. So the prisoner, the white prisoner is walking. The mounted police natives are accompanying this handcuffed white prisoner to Melbourne, walking. And of course, you can imagine, and it was spoken of at the time, that there was a degree of resentment. You can only imagine what how much resentment there might be amongst ordinary, often illiterate, uh, colonial newcomers to this country, uh, finding that they were under the authority of enormously powerful Aboriginal native police. The, the actual historian of the native police corps records that in uh, November of 1852, when he was a newcomer and standing in Elizabeth Street in Melbourne, he saw a funeral procession pass by and following the uh, initial uh, casket and so on uh, were officers and men in uniform and on horseback. And he records that what most struck the new chum, as I then was, was the large number of black troopers. So native police in that uh, procession numbered about 40. And so that there was not not only were they of authority, but they were in numbers and on the street and in ceremonial processions such as a funeral, which must have had an enormous impact on the average uh, new chum uh, wandering the streets of the new colony coming from abroad. That was Vic Say telling us a little bit about the history of Aboriginal people becoming state troopers during the gold rush time in central Victoria. Today on the program we'll be talking to Rick and Vic Say about possum skin cloaks. So possums, most people consider a pest in their garden, but uh, traditionally there was a lot of value attached to possum skin cloaks. Can you tell us about that, Rick? Well, as we know... um you know, the Aboriginal people used the possum skin cloaks for, for warmth. 
Boot report too. You can also turn them around and inside out, uh, and they can um, get, keep you a bit cooler too as well. Um, and, and we know that on the diggings and that, and the early settlers used them to sleep on, and, and also for once they were traded. I think Vic might have an article from his black threads amongst the gold about them being sold and traded on the gold fields. Yeah, there there are there are several stories uh, and and actually photos of um, diggers proudly standing outside their tents with a possum skin cloak over their shoulders during the diggings era. The cost of a possum skin rug or a possum skin cloak rose from five pounds per cloak to ten pounds just a year later, and in those days. One, for instance, was made up of 72 skins. So they were sewn together with sinews. They were uh, patterned traditionally, but for selling, of course, they wouldn't have traditional patterns on them. There are stories of shepherds out on the hills looking after their sheep and, and, and literally being woken up by the tap, tap, tapping of... of um, of something going on and, and, and waking up to see what was happening and finding that the Aborigines had arrived and were harvesting possums from the local hollows, skinning them and uh, stretching the skins out to dry and, of course, eating the meat. They were asked by the shepherd in one particular case, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? And they said, oh, we're, we're, we're harvesting possum skins to sew into cloaks to sell on the gold fields. And so you have people quite a long way from the gold fields actually quite opportunistically, quite commercially, uh, entrepreneurially, <laughs> finding how in where does their culture and the needs of the colonial culture intersect and how can they get commercial advantage? And so, uh, whereas some people have this idea that the Aboriginal folk were uh, bemused bystanders, were the confused uh, victims, uh, and of course, in terms of having their land alienated, having being alienated from their land and having their language and and culture devalued, there was a level of of, of, of vast uh, victimhood there. But individually, often the Aboriginal folk were opportunistic and fully engaged in uh, dealing with the reality of the times that they lived in. It was said that one possum skin cloak was as good on the diggings as 12 blankets. Now, if you can imagine a digger looking for a blanket or two blankets and then finding that they had a possum skin cloak which was as good as 12 blankets, then they were literally the king. They, they were living in comfort. They could be used in rain because the, 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 they're, they're waterproof. Uh, they could, well, traditionally, they were used to carry water in. They could, the Aboriginal folk could uh, carry water in a possum skin cloak uh, quite a distance from any water source if they wanted to do that. So they had many, many uses, but essentially every man, woman and child had a possum skin cloak according to their own size and that was their warmth it was their shelter and it was available for collecting food or carrying water it was very very useful now we also um 
with the help of, was it your group, Vic, the Defenders? Was it? And, uh, and had the opportunity to make a, a possum skin cloak. Yes. Now, what was the occasion when Uncle Brian wore a possum skin cloak onto the MCG, Rick? There was an occasion in Melbourne oh, where yeah. he was given a possum skin cloak to wear at an official gathering. In Melbourne, that's right. And I think it may have been somewhere like the MCG. And when I met him soon after, Brian's eyes were glowing. And he said, Vic, you're, you know, I, w- I wore a possum skin cloak. And his pride in this renewal of his culture and new renewing his sense of what it was to wear a cloak. And uh, I said, well, Brian, we can we can let's investigate this so because we at that stage were having annual reconciliation week uh, displays in the Castlemaine market and elsewhere we devised a system whereby we said okay let's head for 45 cloaks uh, 45 skins for a cloak and we'll see whether that's enough we we investigated from uh, the Melbourne Museum where they would get skins from and they said go to New Zealand they put us in touch with the people there they sent us uh, samples and people got to sponsor a a belt if I remember that's right so we put up a big grid of of, in coloured squares on a big board in the market building and said uh, anybody who would like to sponsor a, a pelt towards a traditional cloak for the local traditional owners uh, donate $40, I think it might have been, to our fund. And typically, I might say, Uncle Brian was one of the first people to hand over $40 and say, I'm part of this too. And uh, quite soon afterwards, we had, you know, more than $1,000 or whatever it was that we needed. We sent off to New Zealand and uh, we got our vast big uh, bundle of possum skins and we had an occasion up at the Uniting Church Hall. And to begin, we invited all the people who had donated money to attend for a ceremonial handing over of the possum skins. And so as many as we could, we actually uh, got each person who donated money to personally hand a pelt to Brian and his family, and I can still remember Rick uh, lugging a big, big plastic bag about a metre by a metre <laughs> uh, of pelts uh, loosely packed off the stage so that we could proceed with the evening. And Rick would have to say what happened to those pelts. Um, well, we had um, somebody came up and showed that gave us a few lessons in how to sew the pelts together. They were traditionally used with um, kangaroo tail sinew, I think. And bone needles. And bone needles. Uh-huh. So, um, and if I remember, we'd done um, one session out at the Waddle Gully Mine um, in one of their big rooms out there. Um, we sewn together the, the, the pelts and we actually um, done some of the, the engravings on the on the clean side of the pelt 
as they traditionally done, uh, told little stories with their designs and motives. Um, and um, yeah, and I think Dad wore that at the opening of the State Festival a few years ago. I think there would be video recording of Uncle Brian on stage in Victory Park, along with a whole lot of other people, probably yourself included. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was a very wonderful moment. Okay, so today Rick and I are going to have a bit of a chat about the local area and the local history of um, Aboriginal people in the goldfields. Rick, you've got some information about Forest Creek, is that right? Um, yeah, yeah, Ali, um, we've got a couple of snippets of um, some, some things that happened on the goldfields and particularly Forest Creek. Um, these are from some of the um, early explorers and, and, and gold diggers and one one is it's particularly about how the indigenous people helped the non-indigenous people, if if you like. Uh, and one one gentleman named Thomas Blythe says that having kept a diary on the goldfields of Bendigo and Ballarat in eighteen fifty two, he puts two small um, um, paragraphs about the Aboriginal people. And uh, he says proceeded about three miles and camped near a gentleman with two blacks. We crossed the Compaspe, taking the horses and cart through the river and paying a native with a canoe to cross our goods. Other miners were deeply indebted to the Aboriginal assistance proffered to them. A desperate tale of near disaster was retold by George Mackay in which a miner's wife, suffering great privations and on the brink of committing suicide and an infant side, in the Loddon River was rescued by Jaja Wurrung youth. According to her own account, she felt impelled to drown herself and her children, standing there looking at her shivering little ones through her scalding tears and hesitating as to which of them she would throw into the river first. She was startled by a sharp, shrill cry. Turning around, she perceived a young black boy bounding towards her, he quickly explained to her that he was with a dray, which was returning home from an outstation. No, you cry, Mrs. Charlie, said the boy affectionately. You all right now? Directly, bless he had, uh, bless his dear black face, she used to say afterwards in telling her pitiful tale. It seemed to me like an angel come down from heaven. <laughs> wow, that's uh, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We've, we've got, um, you know, there's many of these little snippets of information uh, there's even one I know of um, out at Eddington where uh, a man used to cart goods across the river in his um, bark canoe mm. uh, and in one instance even ferried a piano across the river Wow! so an Aboriginal man yeah an yeah. Aboriginal man um, but I think that story is amazing in that it shows such uh, humanity between people because often the story we get is of a really horrendous treatment of, you know, black people by white people yeah. and, and wars and spears and guns and all sorts of stuff. And yeah. it's quite yeah. beautiful to hear a story where uh, someone really steps in and, and... And that's it, you know. They, they, they didn't think very highly of the natives and stuff, you know, but mm. this goes to show, you know, everyone's humane. Even the, 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 the gentleman out at... Um, Eddington, who, who ferried the goods across the river. Mm. Um, a, a, a white man tried to steal his canoe 
one time and, and he actually fell off a couple hundred metres down the river and drowned. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And the old crew is a old fellow called King Tommy. He's a claim out at Eddington and yeah. he actually helped put the bridge out um, from on fire. Oh, it was um, on fire and he helped put it out. And he paddled out and helped put it out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there must be hundreds and hundreds of stories like that, but they just don't come through history, do they, very no, easily? No, that's why like, that guy had only written two little paragraphs yeah. in his diaries. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah. All right, well, that's great. Maybe we should um, look a few more of those stories up for the next episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. We've got... Um, We've got quite a few, so yeah. I think we'll start to have a few over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, great. So what, what book have you got this from, Rick? Um, we, this one's um, it's called Black Gold by Fred Carr. Mm. Um, Fred's from Ballarat. From, uh, I think he's, worked, he's at the Ballarat Uni over there and works with Ian Clark. Yeah. Um, they've written a number of Victorian Aboriginal books. It's, he's still there, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're still there. We've spoken a couple of times in the past about um, Aboriginal people on the gold fields. We spoke to Vic Say about it early on in the series and we spoke about it just a week or so ago with you, Rick. And um, this week you've got a couple of stories for us again from the gold fields. This time uh, are some good luck stories. Yeah, yeah, we've got um, a couple of snippets from some of the local um, newspapers, some of... um, some Aboriginal people on the goldfields and particularly Jajawarung people sometimes getting some quite some, some good little finds. Um, this is from um, Mount Alexander Mail in March 1862. Um, we noticed the other day a party of native men and women fossicking about the old holes in one of our gullies. Their keenness of sight enables them to detect particles of gold that would escape the observation of most Europeans. Though too much adverse to steady labour to dig it himself for the root of all evil, and probably thinking the white fellow a fool for doing so, the black man does not disdain the yellow dust when he can procure it for the trouble of picking it up. (laughs) You're talking about putting so much effort in finding the... They don't understand, like the Aboriginal people were like, why do yeah. they put so much effort into finding this stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's just laying around the ground. Anyway. Yeah. And we've got another one from um, the Tarangawa Times in June 1862. A party of Aborigines on Wednesday, Wednesday sold a very handsome nugget to Messrs. Warnook Brothers. It was slightly intermixed with quartz and weighed 7 ounces and 15 weight which had been in a hole. The blackfellas were evidently in a high glee at their luck. They got 300 tonnes from the Mount Alexander goldfields. 300 tonnes of gold? Yeah, 30 million ounces. Really? Yeah. That's outrageous. I had no idea it was so much. Yeah. I say in that one day England was jolly old England. Yeah. <laughs> All that gold getting shipped over there. Yeah. There's another good one here. Yeah. This is from the August, a Melbourne newspaper, um, July 1864. A party of Aborigines had a windfall the other day near Talbot in the shape of nuggets walking over the old ground in Blacksmith Gully. They picked up two nuggets, one weighing a trifle over one pound and the other about an ounce. 
these nuggets had evidently been thrown up from some of the neighbouring claims by the original workers. <laughs> <laughs> How hilarious. So people had been trying to find all this gold and they'd completely yeah. missed these huge nuggets. Yeah. But that's interesting because it does show that, um, like, from Castlemaine to Talbot, there were there was gold diggings the whole way, but also, um, you know, Aboriginal people were in amongst it the whole way as well. Yeah, that's right. They, they weren't just people on the um, you know, outskirts of the diggings. They, mm. they were um, in, in a bit of fossicking, and also um, we've seen some instances of, of them do it, making a, a living out of selling possum skin cloaks and, mm. and, um, and keeping these miners warm yeah <laughs> they said they were like um, a warmth of 12 blankets a possum skin cloak yeah, yeah. Um, and with um, the Mount Franklin farmers uh, selling vegetables and stuff to, to the Mm. The gold seekers as well. Yeah, there's lots of ways to make money out of the people seeking gold. Keeping them warm, keeping them fed. Keeping them fed. <laughs> Helping them across rivers, as Helping you mentioned them. last time. Yeah. In a canoe. Yeah, that's right. And seems the judge Awarung are involved in most of that as well. Yeah. What an extraordinary thing, though, to have your land and suddenly yeah. all of these people, like more people than had probably existed across the whole of Australia or in central Victoria. In and they're all years, digging 60, up. 60,000 people. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We can go on all night about how crazy that was. <laughs> no wonder people travelled the world to have a go. Yeah. They say you could pan gold on Campbell's Creek for, for 12 months and retire back to England, which is not too bad. Listening to a glimpse into the history and culture of the Jaja Wurrung people. Presented by Uncle Rick Nelson and Ali Hanley. <laughs>